Thanks for listening to the Junior Ziggler podcast. If you are crazy enough to want more of his content, check out the link in the description of this podcast. That link can get you to his book, his socials, and another podcast. Thanks for hitting play. Here's Junior. All right, good to be with you. I, it was fun seeing DJ, who's just up here sweating. I was at North Shore. I, I preached at their 10 o'clock service, so I came here, and I told him, like, hey, we're, like, shifting things around because, you know, just crazy weekend. And um, I was like, if I'm not here in time, man, you're going to have to preach. Like, he's like, what? Is it, this is this morning. I was like, I'll just print out the sermon, like, just, you know, waste time, and then I'll, I'll hopefully get up there. So he was sweating all morning, and then I just saw him back there. He's a big smile. Like, God, thank God. <laughs> What a good guy. He'd have done a great job. Well, it is that time of year. Big season. You know what season is, right? Pumpkin spice season. Any pumpkin spice drinkers in here at all? Okay, gross, gross. <laughs> Some of you ladies, the second temperature dropped below 74, you threw on a flannel and raced to get a pumpkin latte, didn't you? You know who you are, wearing your vest and duck boots. and Uggs are still, are Uggs still in, or is that, I don't know. Pumpkin spice, get this, pumpkin spice brings in Half a billion a year. Not from me. As I said, I just can't get in. My wife, she's into it. Our fr- I went into our fridge the other day and there was pumpkin spice creamer. And I noticed, I was like, what the heck is this? She's like, it's October, babe. It's nothing to me. October means they have to have crappy creamer in the house. Huh? I just can't get into it. That and my wife drinks um, the chai tea. Any chai tea drinkers in here? Again, disgusting. When Nicole and I, when we, we did our freshman year of college together up in Madison, Wisconsin, and um, it's so like a good girlfriend. She, like, she shows up to our philosophy class with a cup of chai tea, and she's like, you've never had this? This is like a life-changing drink. You have to try it. I, I took a drink, spit it out. I was like, did you take my grandma's potpourri and pour it in this cup? It's, just, it's disgusting. It tastes like my grandma's house. And I know how this goes. After service, people come up and be like, I have this special chai tea drink. You, I know it's, you have to try it. It'll be, no, I don't, like, I don't care what potpourri you're steeping. I just can't get into it. The, I, so this morning, when I showed up for the Bridge Kids, um, I walked by the Bridge Kids check-in, and there was Thea and Issa, and they were drinking a drink from Starbucks. And as I looked at it, it was uh, chai tea with pumpkin creamer on the top. It's just like the worst of both worlds. <laughs> but you can like it. You can like it. That's the funny thing about taste. Is taste is just, it's, just, it's a funny thing. Uh, we all have very different tastes. My middle daughter will eat a, a half a block of feta every morning for breakfast. She's been doing it since she was two. I mean, girls got a, like a bougie palate. And not only do we have different tastes, but the tastes change. Like when I was a kid, I used to love those individually wrapped uh, cheese slices. Remember those? Disgusting. I don't know how I ever, it's not even cheese. I don't know how I ever liked it, but I used to love it. Now I hate it. Our tastes change. I love taking my girls out on dates. It's one of my favorite things. You know, they, they plan things out and, and I love hearing them talk about, you know, what, they, what, what they're going to do, what they're going to wear, where we're going to go. And when they were little, they would always choose you know, like fast food, kid food, right? Chicken nuggets. Got to get chicken nuggets. That, that was like the finest dining. Hot date if you get chicken nuggets. And then as they get older, though, the dates are becoming more fun. Last time, my oldest chose a Middle Eastern restaurant. Like, all right, girl, now we're talking. This is good food. Because her palate is developing as she grows into a young, a young woman. Like, our tastes, buds, are supposed to mature. Mine hasn't fully. I still love those blue raspberry blow pops. Those are still the bomb. But our tastes are supposed to mature as we, as we get older. And this is exactly how Jesus talks about our inner growth. Our spiritual growth, or really lack thereof, is influenced by our taste in life. 
And some of us are struggling spiritually and maybe we've never connected it or we haven't really noticed it because it's hard to see in the mirror, but we're struggling spiritually because we have bad taste in life. And this is the conversation that Jesus really wants to have today. So we're gonna be in Matthew chapter five. It's page 809 in the Bible's in the chairs. Otherwise, and a lot of people use their phones or their tablets. We have the bridge app, but Matthew chapter five. We've been on the same exact page of scripture for four weeks. We are pretty slow around here. That or we just have a slow teaching pastor and you guys just put up with it. But regardless, same page of scripture, Matthew chapter five. Let me pray and we'll jump in. God, we do thank you for your word. And may you remind us of the weight of these words that we hold on our hands. God breathed. We believe these words are living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. And so, Father, if you need to do a surgery with that sword today, we are open to that. May you remind us of the weight of this moment, gathering together corporately as brothers and sisters and hearing from Dad, our Creator. God, may we take this time for what it's worth. Eliminate all distractions, please. Tune us into what you have. May we humbly submit ourselves to your word, ready for what you have. May we not fight off any conviction, but may we be fully open to what you have. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as the lens of scripture zooms into Matthew chapter five, we find ourselves back on that hill that we've been on for the last four weeks. The sun now has moved toward the peak of the sky, ushering in the sweltering heat of the day. The hill sits below sea level and it just roasts during the afternoon. One by one, the crowd begins to throw thin hoods over their heads to protect themselves from the relentless rays that are beating down. A few families make little makeshift tents for shade. They're in it for the long haul. The entire crowd grows thirsty as they sweat it out. Not just thirsty, but dry, parched thirst. The glimmering water behind Jesus seems to tease us. The water jars that weigh down the picnic blankets are less and less full with every word that Jesus says. And as Jesus sits on his rock and he teaches, he does what he so often did and does so well. He reads the crowd like a book and he speaks to their current feeling and he says this, blessed are those, makarios, happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. Now let's just shoot straight here for a second. So far, Jesus' sermon would not rate very high on Rotten Tomatoes. Because if you think about it, think about like what Jesus has talked about so far. Just be poor in spirit. So let's go tell a bunch of poor people, hey, you'll be happy if you realize you're not just materially poor, you're spiritually poor as well. Oh, also you should mourn. And then you should act humble, lowly, meek. And now Jesus says, oh yeah, and be hungry. Come on, if we were to stay at surface level here, we'd look at this, we'd think this is extremely offensive, Jesus. Read your audience. They are poor, they are oppressed, they are hungry people. Like, what are you doing? These people feel all that. This is very insensitive. This is offensive. But as we've been seeing so far in this series, Jesus is being methodically brilliant. He's taking a direct physical need and then relating that to a deeper spiritual need. And it is brilliant. Like, this is a big difference um, between a great teacher and a teacher. I think all of us growing up, we, we all teachers, right? But there's like a few teachers that really, really stuck out to us. They were just great. And they stuck out to us for a few different reasons. I mean, maybe they cared or they reached out or they sacrificed their time to, to help us. But one of the things that sets apart a teacher from a great teacher is their ability to do what Jesus is doing here to take a felt need, poverty, hunger, and use that as a teaching tool to teach a greater message. The way I think about it is it's like the magic school bus. You ever watch the show? 
best show ever. Miss Result, she was one of my first crushes. Adventurous, funky outfits. Her and Mary Poppins just had my heart when I was little. Um, but Miss Result wasn't just a wasn't just a looker. She was like the best teacher. That's why we tune in. And each episode was the same. Like there's a problem with one of the students. They're sick. And now Miss Frizzle is going to use that feeling that all the students are feeling and then to, as a tool to teach a bigger lesson. So like one of the episodes that sticks out to me was uh, Ralphie. He gets sick. And so Miss Frizzle shrinks the bus down and goes inside Ralphie to fight this virus and teaches the class how the body fights infections. So we take a felt need, what's on their mind, what they're dealing with, and then we're going to leverage that for a memorable lesson. This is what Jesus is doing. You're like, hold up. Did you just compare Jesus to Miss Frizzle? Sort of. But she's made up and scripted and team of writers. Jesus isn't made up and uh, he was the first to do it. All that to say, my goodness, Magic School Bus and the Beatitudes. How is our church growing? God, no other way. All that to say, this is Jesus's approach to the Beatitudes. He brings up something that these faces feel, poverty, hunger, thirst, and then he uses that to talk about a greater issue. Now it's not just a topic that we're listening to. No, now we feel what you're talking about. We know the sense of urgency with what you're talking about. And so what you're talking about is really going to stick. And so Jesus says hunger and thirst. Now there's a massive theological implication that Jesus is making right here. Uh, but before we get to that theological implication, we need to unpack one more word in this verse. So I just kind of want to Tarantino this uh, for, for just a second. And, and I want to put a pin in hunger and thirst, and we'll come back to that. But first, I want to hit this very churchy word, righteousness, for just one second. Today, we don't hear righteousness really outside of religion, do we? Righteousness isn't something that we use. I guess surfers use it, you know, like, righteous, brah. I just sounded like Wyatt there for a second. Um, outside of that, though, we don't use the word righteous like in normal conversation. And the problem with, with all of this is, is that when Jesus is teaching here, he's not using a churchy word. He's using an everyday word, righteousness. Righteousness just means what is right, morally right. It's a simple, basic definition. Now, having said that, in scripture, there are two kinds of righteousness. And so we're gonna, here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna go into like a little bit of a theological sidebar for a second. We're gonna go to seminary for just a little bit um, and kind of get into a little bit some deeper stuff, but, but it does matter and it really opens up what Jesus is talking about. In scripture, there are two types of righteousness. The first type of righteousness is called legal righteousness. Some call it um, internal, but we're just gonna go with legal. Legal righteousness is given to us by Jesus Christ. So Jesus' death and resurrection made it possible for you and I, we can be declared right before God, not based on anything we've done, but based on what Jesus did on the cross in the empty tomb. It's a beautiful thing. We are legally right before the creator of the universe, and we don't deserve that. Beautiful thing. So that's legal righteousness. The second type of righteousness is called personal righteousness. Now others call it external, so you have like internal, external, that's fine, but we're just gonna call it personal righteousness. Personal righteousness is once we've received that legal righteousness, once we've received Jesus' righteousness, we then produce good works. We produce right things. So Jesus declared me legally right, now I can produce personal right things. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. So the question then becomes, this is like the big question when you read a text like this, especially what Jesus is saying here. So you look at this, you go, okay, which righteousness is Jesus talking about? Legal or personal? Which one are we supposed to hunger and thirst for? Well, there's a lot of fighting about this. But it's kind of a trick question because it's both. Now there's a lot of denominations and, and churches like big debate and they, they, they talk over this and they divide over this and they fight over this. The problem is, is that once you separate legal and personal righteousness, you have really big problems. 
without personal righteousness that Jesus gives, it's works-based salvation. Maybe you grew up like in a church that taught that, hey, you gotta earn your way to God, you gotta do this, 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 and this, and then hopefully you've done enough and you know, God accepts you, all that. No, 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 you can't earn your way to God. You need Jesus's righteousness. You need legal righteousness. So we can't take that out. Now, without personal righteousness, we call that easy believism. It's like, hey, just believe in God and do whatever you want. That, all that is wrong, but a lot of people are doing that. But James says faith without works is dead. So legal and personal righteousness, they, they, work, they work together, they complement each other. And so Jesus is, Jesus is saying, blessed or happy is the one who hungers to be right with God. He is fully and finally satisfied in Jesus Christ. He's declared right before God. But now that I'm declared right before God, I'm sent on this journey where I have this healthy hunger to live right, to do what's right, to have right relationships, to bless others, to love others, to have patience, to, to, to be generous. Because Jesus gives me righteousness, that stirs in me to then do righteousness. I can't do righteousness on my own. I first see Jesus' righteousness. So that's righteousness. Now, having said that, okay, let's take the pin back out of hunger and thirst and let's go back to talk about this implication that Jesus is getting at. Hunger and thirst. You ever been hungry? Like, but like true hungry? Like when I look at hunger and thirst, when I think of hunger, I think it, for me, I think of Tuesday at 1130. That is my hungry time every week because Tuesdays are my meeting days. So if I eat breakfast, usually breakfast like 5 a.m. and then my first meeting is at 730 and it's a small meeting, and then the meeting just kind of gets bigger as the day goes on. By 11 o'clock, it's like our whole staff, it's 40 some of us, and by 11.30, my stomach is growling. It is embarrassed to sit next to me, embarrassing to sit next to me, because it just, it's this loud growl. And all I can think about is the sushi special down in Dadambori. You get two rolls for, for the price of one. Like, give me that. I just want two crunchy rolls, my wasabi, and I'm good. It's all I can think about during, during staff meeting. So later on, I'll have to come back and like reread the staff meeting notes because I couldn't focus. It's like, oh, that's what we were talking about. That's my hunger. But to be clear, that's not the hunger that Jesus or these people are thinking of. That's not first century Galilean hunger. When Jesus said hunger, these people didn't think about a hunger pang during a meeting. What came to their mind was seeing their children's ribs during weeks of less. Like on rainy days, like we had yesterday, families would huddle inside knowing today's rainy day off could mean next week's hunger. It was not uncommon for families to go days without anything to eat. Like they knew starvation. They were well acquainted with it. They knew hunger. They knew fatigue, inability to focus, nausea, headache, hunger. And that kind of hunger is incredibly powerful. That kind of hunger can drive a man to do something he would normally never, ever even dream of doing. Case in point, 1972. Some of you might remember when this happened, or maybe you've seen the movie or the documentary. Uruguayan rugby team crashed into the Andes Mountains. Many died, many lived. The survivors were stranded there, whoops, stranded there for 72 days. 72 days, nothing to eat. Like everything's frozen. Their hunger became so strong, they resorted to eating their dead. I mean, these are teammates. These are friends. The story made, you know, world headlines and, and many read the reports responding like, I can't believe they did that and I would never do that. And then there's interviews with these men afterwards and these men were weeping saying, I would never saw myself doing that. I don't want to talk about it, but it's the only reason that we're alive. My hunger drove me to do something I would never normally dream of doing. And it sparked this, this global conversation. Could you do it? After we watched the documentary, I turned it off. My wife looked at me. She's like, could you eat me? And I said, for sure. Absolutely. But I wouldn't. I would use you as bait, catch a polar bear, maybe make a net out of your hair. I had, I had it all planned out. Conversation ended there. 
<laughs> but the whole story of the Uruguayan rugby team sparked this, sparked this big conversation. Could you do what they did? And most people say, no, absolutely not. In fact, some of you are shaking your heads. There's no way I would ever do that. But it's really hard to say that when you've never actually been there. To experience that deep hunger. Because true hunger drives us to do things that we would normally never ever dream of doing. Hunger is one of the most powerful, if not the most powerful feeling. Some people, you can maybe make the case in some context that it can be even more powerful than love. Like we'll do crazy things for love. Last weekend, my wife ran the Chicago Marathon. And I don't like going to the city. I don't like crowds and I don't like running. But I took the day, went down into the city, fought crowds to watch people run because I love my wife. I'll do crazy things for her because I love her. In fact, such crazy things that I, I, wore, I wore this shirt to cheer, to cheer her on, you know? And I, wore, I walked around with my mother-in-law. I, I put the shirt on, I walked down, my mother-in-law was like, you're gonna wear that? I was like, absolutely. And then she started laughing. I was like, I'm so glad you had that response. <laughs> I even got on TV with it. But I'll do crazy things because I love my wife. So I'll do crazy things for her. But interestingly enough, Jesus doesn't use the term love here. It's interesting. Jesus doesn't say love righteousness. He says, no, I want you to hunger, to crave. Because the hungrier a person gets, the more tunnel vision they have to the food. They see less and less and they care about less and less of their image, drama, politics, what others are up to. Their only agenda item, tunnel vision, is they need to eat. Nothing else matters. But I feel that too many Christians, and to be candid, too many of us, our pursuit of what's right doesn't resemble hunger. Our pursuit of what's right is often done out of convenience. Well, we wanna do what's right. Problem is we also have our own agendas. We wanna look good, we wanna do what we wanna do, we, have, we wanna be respected, we wanna grow our career, we wanna capitalize on opportunities, and none of, none of those are necessarily bad. They're healthy desires at times, but often they weigh heavier to us than what is actually right. Or am I the only one? I, I'm ashamed to say it, but I will. I already showed you Miss Frizzle in my shirt. So um, this summer, a friend of mine invited me to speak at a, a small gathering in, in Berlin. And nothing crazy, just like, and wasn't gonna get paid or anything. We're just like this gathering of pastors. And, um, and it sounded fun. It's like, well, I've, I've only been in the airport. Yeah, if you're gonna put me up in Germany, I'll go. Sign me up. Then two weeks ago, I got an invite to speak at a conference out west for the same date. Now, I got excited about that one because it's like beautiful hiking area, bring my wife, big gathering. It's a bigger gathering, get paid for it. It's an opportunity to get my book to that part of the country. It's one of those opportunities that you just kind of like wait for and then you pounce on. But I like committed to this like smaller, no money thing. And I'm embarrassed, but I immediately went into this mode of trying to weasel my way out because of my own agenda, just finding excuses. And I was doing a really good job justifying myself, finding excuses, until my wife asked me, she said, yeah, but honey, what's the right thing? What's the right thing? I was like, come on, why you gotta ask me that? <laughs> because she knew it and I knew it. But I was holding onto my agenda. There was no real hunger in me to do the right thing. I was more hungry for my thing. And the truth is, I do this too much. There's times where I'll just kind of slant things just a little bit to make myself look more innocent or hold on to an apology because it'd just be too humbling to just own up to that. Like I read these words of Jesus personally and I think yeah, I wanna do what's right. I, I really do believe that I have the right heart, but I don't have this deep starvation abiding hunger to like live right, to do what's right, to pursue right no matter what the cost. Like, I wanna do what's right, but often it depends on the cost. And Jesus is not, deep, deep hunger doesn't take much cost into account. Deep hunger just does it. Do you actually hunger for righteousness? 
few, th- few thoughts from the text. Number one, appetites direct our lives. Appetites direct our lives. Uh, what's the old saying? You are what you eat. There's a lot of scientific truth to that. Actually, in more than one way. Um, what we eat becomes our physical physique. So for example, you know the term beer belly? There's actually like, that's actually like legit because those carbs are carried in, in the belly. Uh, meat and protein encourage muscle. The food we consume are, is building blocks for tomorrow's body. But interestingly enough, uh, there's more to it than that. What we eat greatly impacts our mental state later on. And even in the moment, like that's why there's times where, you know, you're feeling down and then you have comfort food, right? You rented that comfort food for a pick-me-up. But unfortunately, comfort food always bites later on because somebody feels shame and bloated and then those negative emotions just rush right back and now you're worse off than you were before. But foods affect energy level and mental state. One of the best pieces of eating advice I was ever given was don't eat what feels good in the moment. Eat what's going to make you feel good later on. Don't eat what feels good because the fries always feel good in the moment. Instead, eat what's going to make you feel good an hour from now. Oh, well, that's, inter- that's a different paradigm. Because in an hour from now, the fries aren't going to feel so good. I'm going to be tired. But the protein or the fruit, whatever, I'm going to feel a lot better, be more energetic and ready to take on the afternoon. We are what we eat physically, but often mentally. And Jesus is making the point here that's absolutely true spiritually. Truth is, we consume things constantly. We consume, we, we consume what we watch on TV we stream, uh, we, we consume as we scroll on our phones, we consume what we listen to on our playlist. I remember my professor in college uh, said, maybe I only remember it because he had a classy British accent, but he said, every song you listen to is a sermon. Every episode you watch is a sermon. Every movie you go to is a sermon. Every commercial you watch is a sermon. Everything has a message and it is consumed by our spirit. And so what we do is we, and we can't help it. It's just reality. We live our days consuming everything spiritually and that consumption directs our lives. Like you literally become what you think about and where you spend the most time. I, I, I spoke somewhere and I said that, I was at a different church and, and this like 30 year old guy, he lived in his mom's basement, came up to me and uh, he vehemently disagreed. And he said, Junior, I wish what you said was true. I wish what I thought about I became because I think about being a one, uh, level 100 warlord, but I'm not that on my video game. And this is legit. It's like, all right. And I wanted to say, it's like, well, you are. You are that. It's just what you think about doesn't exist. And you're not really existing, living in your mama's basement with no job, playing video games. But that would have been mean, so I didn't say that. But it's still true in that scenario. Like, we are what we think about. We are what we give our passion and our time to. We are what we consume. But here's where it gets even scarier is what we consume directs our cravings. So I hate to stay with the whole eating illustration, but Jesus brought it up. So that's where we're going to stay. What we eat determines what we crave. And you might think, Junior, this is way backwards. Hold on a second. Isn't it like what we crave determines what we eat? Like if I crave ice cream this afternoon, I'm going to eat ice cream. Well, yeah, sure. It's a vicious cycle. But what we crave in a moment is actually connected to what we consumed earlier. So for example, um, there's this study done about how, uh, your, your, how you awake your stomach tells your stomach what it wants the rest of the day. So the food you eat, the first thing that hits your stomach, will act, you'll crave the rest of the day. So there's a study done with kids at breakfast and a big long table and some kids were given sugar cereal and other kids were given like healthy omelets or whatever. And the kids who ate the sugar cereal ended up consuming far, 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 far more sugar the rest of the day than the kids who ate omelets. So what they ate determined what they craved the rest of the day. I always think of that, that study every time I fill up my 
coffee cup in the morning in the office because there's this M&M jar right by the coffee cup. And, uh, and when I get coffee, it's like a battle every time. It's like, it's just one M&M, but it's also pushing a snowball and I don't want to crave that jar of M&Ms the rest of the day. I don't want to push that snowball. So this can be a good thing or a bad thing, right? You eat something healthy and then you're going to crave healthier things. Jesus is saying the exact same thing is true spiritually. I don't have the quote, but one of my favorite quotes by C.S. Lewis, he wrote that the moment you wake up, you are ru- uh, you ha- your desires and your lusts rush at you like wild animals. And your first job as a believer, when you open your eyes, is to put all of those wild animals back in its place. I love that quote because I remember my dad like training me, you know, say, Junior, when you wake up in the morning, do not just lay in bed. You get up, get up and you get at it because the first part of your day, those first waking moments really set the tone for the rest of the day. You're gonna be lazy, sit around, scroll on your phone, sit there in lustful thought. What are you gonna do? Because that's gonna determine the rest of the day. Do you know that your brain creates 1,400 new neurons as you're sleeping? This means when you wake up, you have 1,400 new neurons that are saying, tell me what to think, tell me what to think, tell me what to think. When you wake up, just like your stomach, what you fill your mind with, what you're scrolling, what you're thinking about will direct what your spirit craves the rest of the day. It's powerful. This is why in scripture, I I believe that throughout Psalms, it says, I will seek you in the morning. I'll seek you in the morning. Why? Because I'm telling those 1,400 new neurons, this is who we're seeking today. This is who we're craving today. I'll talk with... uh, people, usually guys, who are sometimes candid with me and real, and, and I appreciate their, how, how real they are, but they'll say, you know, I just I hate it. I feel like I've lost interest in God, you know, and I want to, I want to have this craving for God, but I don't. But man, like a year ago, I was interested. I don't know. I don't know what happened. Like I was in God's word. I was hungry. I was in church serving all that. But like, I just it's a struggle for me now to get in God's word. It's a struggle to go to church. And I appreciate that they're like being real. It's like, God, I get it. Like there's tough seasons and real Christians are going to go through that. Usually though, it's because you started consuming something you shouldn't or you're over-consuming something. It's like, yeah, bro, you lost interest in church, but that's because for the last six months, 80% of your free time is all aimed at sports, 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 sports. And sports aren't bad, but if you're over-consuming it, you're gonna have less interest in God. So those new neurons that you're waking up in the morning, they're just thinking, we crave sports, we crave sports, we crave sports, instead of, I will seek you in the morning and I will crave God. What we consume directs our cravings. Which is why, uh, it's a very common saying, you've probably heard it, just get it out of your system. You ever hear that? We'll tell people that, like parents will tell people that in college sometimes. Hey, just get out of your system. If you crave it, go get it. You know, go play the field, sow your wild oats. Like get it all out of your system. That is bull. You don't get anything out of your system. Instead, you lock it in and then you crave it more. Ask any addict. What we consume directs our cravings. And that means that we can actually consume our way away from God. That's what John Piper wrote. He wrote, our first parents ate their way out of the Eden and so do we. Adam and Eve were in the presence of God, literally ate their way out. My daughter asked me the other night, she's like, why did Adam and Eve ever eat of that tree? I said, baby, we do it every day, every day. Through Jesus Christ, God comes to us. We are invited into this powerful connection with God. We have God in us, but we're eating this and we're consuming that. We're feasting on that, which kills us. And we're eating our way out of the presence of God. We're never satisfied. And for some of us, just a little adjustment in what we consume would do wonders for where we're headed. I was recently convicted by my dad. He's the worst. He, <laughs> he said something in a meeting 
a while back that I haven't been able to shake. And it's not just me, actually. I, I was talking to a couple guys on staff. They popped into my office and they're like, man, when your dad said that, it like ruined me. I haven't been able to like stop thinking about it. I was like, yeah, actually me too. My dad said, my dad said this. He said, I, I try to live by this rule. If I wouldn't play that song or watch that clip in church, I won't watch it, period. My body is a temple. And if it couldn't be played in church, it won't be consumed by my temple. Dang. I immediately thought of my morning workout playlist. Every morning, I start my day listening to music I listened to in high school. You know, like the 2005 hits that I shouldn't listen to, like Nelly, DMX, Old Kanye, Pitbull. And I've always justified it. I say, it's just workout music, you know, it gets the blood flowing, like whatever. And it's like, ah, I wouldn't play that in front of my girls. I wouldn't play it in church, but I'm allowing it in my temple. And the make matters worse is like right away in the morning. You know what I was feeding my 1,400 new neurons every morning? I ain't saying she a gold digger. That's what I'm feeding them. It's just like terrible. So since that meeting, I switched up the playlist. And, and maybe this sounds like an overreaction, but I actually filled like my workout playlist with worship music. And I, a buddy of mine did the same thing. We're like, oh, we're, we're gonna do this together. It was just like, we're gonna be spiritually fed every morning, early in the morning. Those new neurons are gonna hear worship as we work out physically. And it's an unbelievable difference eating breakfast after that versus what I was listening to before. This matters. What are you consuming? Because you are. What snowballs are you pushing? Because you are. What cravings are you stirring? Because you are. And it's those acts, often mindless acts, often mindless consumption, but it brings us to or it takes us away from the presence and the power of God that truly satisfies. Some of us are not right. We're not right. And, and, and we feel off, we have for some time, and you can call it a funk, I get it, or call it a season, sure. But the truth is, spiritual diet has you lost. Craving everything else. Just living in this deadly, unsatisfied spiral. It's why Jesus sat on the rock that day and looked over the crowd and said, happy are you who hunger and thirst for what's right? Because that's where you'll be satisfied. And God is beckoning you back. He's saying, change the diet. Stir up craving for me. I'll meet you in that. You'll find all that you want. I'll leave with one verse. It's a verse that God put on my heart this week, and I feel like I must share it. This comes from Paul in Galatians. He writes, so let's not grow tired of doing what is good. This is personal righteousness, that what we produce. Let's not grow tired of doing what is good. For at the right time, we will reap a harvest of blessing if we do not give up. I feel like some of us have given up. Maybe not because you're tired. Maybe it's just you've given up out of distraction stirred way too many cravings for what's off. And now you're confused. And God is inviting you back because the harvest is coming. I took a picture with my daughter this week and we looked at it after we took the picture and we were both laughing because we noticed that I have far, far more gray than I had last year. And my wife's been teasing me about it. But looking at the picture just kind of hit me. It's like, I used to, I used to love being like the young gun preacher on staff. You know, I took pride in that. It's like, I can't even claim that anymore. I've, the, the interns all call me old 
Last time I preached, I had no joke. I'm not making this up. Three separate people text me. Yeah, you look tired. It's like, I'm not. I'm just not aging well, apparently. <laughs> but it does go to show time is, time's ticking. The harvest is coming. And to be completely candid with you, I just can't wait. I can't wait. I feel like every year I add, I just can't wait even more. I, I can't wait for the trumpet to sound. I, I can't wait to be in his presence. I can't wait. And as one of your pastors, I want to stand there next to you. And in that moment, I want to look at you and I want to say, it was worth it, wasn't it? It was so worth it. Oh, it wasn't easy hungering for what was right in a world full of wrong and sacrificing at every bend and living faithful and loving his church and serving at every opportunity and applying his word and fighting temptation. Man, that life was a fight. But boy, we stayed hungry. It was worth it, wasn't it? Church, let's live hungry. Hungry for what's right. Hungrier every year. So that on that day, when the trumpet sounds, that day's coming. And we stand face to face with Jesus. In that moment, we won't shrink back. Because we stand in the presence of the very one we spent our life hungering for. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for what's right. For they shall be satisfied. Father, I thank you so much for Jesus Christ, for the one who taught this sermon. I thank you that his teaching didn't just stop there, but that he went to the cross and rose again to give us that legal righteousness that we need. Father, I ask that you find us as a church, as a people, corporately, but also privately, whether in our homes or at work, serving in our communities. May you find us as a people who are hungry for what's right to live right, to do right. Not because it earns us anything, but because of what Jesus did for us, because we've been declared righteous before you. God, you are better. You're so much better. May we taste that more. May we know that more. May we be fully convinced of that. Because your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, so what question? We always take some time just to sit in some reflection, create some space for confessions, commitments. I just want to ask you the so what question is, where does your diet need to change? Of course, I'm not talking actual eating. I'm talking spiritual diet. Because if God convicts you like he convicts me, we read God's word and there's situations that come to mind. There's playlists that maybe need to be deleted or there's things on our to-watch list that need to, we need to get rid of or there's a series of conversations that we've been having with people that it just needs to stop because it's not right. What's he been convicting you of? What off-cravings have you been stirring Thanks again for listening. Again, for more content, just scroll down to the podcast description and follow the link. Before we call it, would you be kind enough to share this podcast? It goes a long way. 
Blessings on you today. See you next time.